Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week we're talking revolution in the bakeries of Europe. There is something really quite revolutionary about doing this kind of handwork in this day and age and making a staple product that has been so over-industrialized over the last century and kind of fighting the good fight for a quality product. Berlin baker Laurel Kratichevila takes us from Boston to Prague, Lisbon to Warsaw and Hackney, sniffing out the best brioche, chalas and breads of every shape and hue to meet 11 bakers who are riding the new wave of baking. Her new book, New European Baking, is part guidebook to the coolest city bakeries in Europe, part celebration of the return to craftsmanship. I began by asking her which came first, the city guide or the quest for revolution? Well, I I would say that it was the bakeries first. It's certainly evolved into something that is a bit of a best of list, in addition to all the recipes, but more so it's about the people who are doing the baking and what I think they're bringing to the story of artisan bakery right now in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's a big book in breadth. It's a big book in terms of content. And it introduces us to the backstory of Europe. That's what I really loved about it. You know, when I'm going to Paris or wherever, I always kind of get on Instagram and say, oh, where should I go and eat? Or let me find the best croissants. Last time I went, I looked up Kitty Date and to find out where she'd found her best croissants and stuff. It's always that thing, isn't it? You find your way through a city, through other people's recommendations. This feels like there's those recommendations. And there's the introduction to these cool people. I mean, what a great way to see the world. Tell us how you came to find such amazing people. So the people in my book are certainly not the most famous or even celebrated bakers in Europe, but I think they're really some of the best who who are pushing the craft forward. And most of them I know from my network as a baker myself and it's really a profession with an enormous amount of exchange, right? There's like, like you would have in all facets of gastronomy, there's staging and, you know, people, when they go on vacations, they seek out who are the other bakers? Can I come and work in your bakery for a day? And, and so there's this enormous amount of exchange. And through that, a lot of these people are very much my network or their mentors. And so they're people that, I really trust in terms of their commitment and their ideas and their style of work and everything. And so even if they're not the most well-known, I think everyone in the book is the best. Well, I mean, that's what's really nice about it. I mean, I'm only half joking, actually. When you do want to kind of go to a city... Uh, certainly, I don't want to just go and pop into H&M in another city. I want to find the people who make that city breathe. I want to find, and I hate that word call, I was only kind of joking when I meant when I said they're the coolest people. But actually, when you really find the people who have added something really interesting to a city, and very often a bakery or a really interesting kind of restaurant will be those places. That's where you think this is city gold. This is what we're really looking for. Um, you know, the kind of the timeout guides and all that kind of stuff are, are always trying to find those people because we all know that when we found them, that's the key to the city. 
you don't present it like that, I have to say. Yours is much more their story and you really introduce us to the backstory of them. I mean, tell us about Roberta Pizzella, for example. Oh, wow. I think Roberta's definitely one of the most impressive people in the book. Um, She is Italian. She's from a town called Frosinone and it's about halfway between Rome and Naples and she does some of the the best bread you've ever had. You know, it's light, it's crusty. She works with all kinds of interesting grains. And she's really, really celebrated for her, her panettone. And it's, of course, all natural. It's all sourdough and so on. Uh, but how she got to where she is, to, to me, it's so impressive. Because she started out in a grocery store just in her hometown, working the cash register and reading culinary magazines when, when, uh, it was, when it was a little bit quiet. And she became really, really interested in food and its provenance and, and where does it come from and how can people eat better? And, and she asked at her grocery store, you know, can I do something about the fish counter here, right? They're quite close to the sea and there's a lot of better local fish. And, and she completely turned around the fish counter in the grocery store. So it's, it's a very democratic to the people first step into food. And then she said, well, I think I want to go farther into this. And she went to, she went to culinary school. She became a pastry chef. She worked at La Pergola, um, you know, the three Michelin starred restaurant and, and really got her chops in pastry, but at the same time was always really pulled into bread and noticed that in these fine dining establishments, uh, everything can be really to the most impressive degree of sourcing and craft and all that. But very often the bread basket is actually total crap. And so that was really her, one of her starts in bread was redesigning the bread basket at La Pergola. And at the same time, she was friends with Gabriella Bonci. And so she was doing bread with him because he's the famous pizzaiolo in Rome. And, and from there, she just developed and developed and developed her talents over many, many years. And after all of that in these sort of glory, glorious places, you know, that get a lot of recognition, she winds up coming home to Frosinone, to her town, going back to the grocery store and saying, I want to redo the bakery. You shouldn't be serving the people crap. I'm going to go into, they had a central bakery for, for 12 different stores. And I'm, I'm going to change the bread here. And she did that. And she did that um, up until a certain point when she finally opened her own bakery. And that's what I write about in the book. But what a story, right? Yeah, she- absolutely. And and actually, the book is peppered with those stories. I mean, it is an extraordinary story. But actually, most of the bakers that you feature have some kind of story that's similar. And it's all to do with this love of craft. It's this need to get back to the artisan. It feels very old and very new at the same time. It feels like when you go into these bakeries, even through the pages of your book, you found the heart of a city because that's 
It's their heart. I can imagine other people lusting after the brioche and the pizzas and the challah and all sorts of baked goods. But actually, it's the stories that really drew me in. Tell us a little bit about your backstory, because actually it's not dissimilar. So I'm, I'm from Boston. Uh, never should have been a baker. Well, was always attracted to it. But in, in my family, it's much more like go and get a science degree and do something like that, you know, doctor, lawyer, whatever. Yeah. And I, so I, I did what I was supposed to. I went to college. I studied physics and then I just ran in the opposite direction. I said, okay, if I can hold this off a minute longer, <laughs> I will. And so I wound up in Europe and I, and I, I always worked service jobs, food jobs, whatever, and wound up in Prague where I was bartending and met my husband and, you know, one thing leads to another and suddenly I'm living over here and have very few translatable skills. But you were a bartender at that time. And I love your description of, you know, walking through different parts of the night. You know, you're walking home in these pre-dawn walks where you'd, you'd suddenly smell this other world. And I get this sense of, you know, the, the streets of, of Prague, very empty, but smelling of these beautiful bakeries. What, did it remind you of home or did it just make you think, oh, that's where I want to be? Oh, I think, you know what it really was? I think there was some degree of self-pity. You know, this is, this is, this is Prague of what, like 2007, 2008. And the winters are so dark there and everyone looks absolutely miserable, <laughs> especially the people walking to work in these early hours. And I think there, it was a little bit of a, you know, the, the little matchstick girl, <laughs> that, that, that old fairy tale. Cobbled streets. Yes, cobbled streets. But, <laughs> and she's looking into these yellow windows, wonderful <laughs> smells, and it's all warm. And I'm staring in, but I'm on the outside. And, and I just smell like beer and cigarettes, and it's disgusting. And, and it just looked like such a nice world in these bakeries. And... I had no access to it. I could only look in those windows and buy a bun off of them. But but it stuck in my mind as like that somehow I want to be behind the cozy window. So you met your husband there and he was a bookseller. And it was then that you went to Berlin and, and, and got the dream to do your own bakery. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was even a dream so much as it started out as a bit of a necessity. It didn't work as well as the store in Prague worked. It's a very different culture over it. Well, in Berlin, it's, you might be familiar. People come here to party and yeah. live cheap. And so we needed something to kind of perk up the bookstore. And that's when I started the cafe and I started baking and started baking things that I really missed from home. Very like East Coast Jewish bakery, because that's what I love. And started making the bagels and and uh, really trying to respect traditional flavors and how those were created. So long fermentation and so on. And and I don't know, the next thing I knew, it was really, really catching on. And so we moved to a bigger spot and, you know, I'm, I'm doing the seven day work week and the terrible early mornings and going on and on, getting myself carpal tunnel syndrome. I mean, it's so, so glamorous. <laughs> 
Um, and, you know, after doing that for a few years, I really wanted to expand my bakery knowledge. At this point, I had a, I had a team and I had a little more freedom. I could move around. And so I went to France to culinary school. I mean, that's the kind of the parallel with, with Roberta and so many of these people is, you know, you do it and you do it, but then you really, really do it. And it's going to France that kind of puts you in touch with so many of these other bakers, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, part part of why you go to school and then you, you go and you stage is because you're making a network. Yeah. And before I did this, to be completely honest, I, I felt very alone in it. I didn't have a big network. I, I had a big network of people who worked in food in some capacity or ran cafes, restaurants, what have you. But in terms of bakery, I, I didn't have these people I could call and, and say, hey, look, I'm doing this. What's your experience with that? What, what flavor do you think will work with this? And so part of why you do go through the whole professional training is that it's making a network and then of course all the tricks you learn what do you think it tells you what are the defining characteristics that you found between all these people because it kind of jumps off the page what i'm getting oh i think everybody in the book is all at once a kind of lone wolf and yet very community oriented it's it's almost contradictory it's people who are massively independent and are really able to drive themselves and uh, because they're also passionate about this area of handicraft, right? And, and yet they forge these connections with each other. It feels to me like they're people who've kind of taken a left turn um, in life, that they are the anti-industrial world. They are using their hands, loving kneading with their hands and making things. The artisan is a kind of almost like a revolutionary figure. And I suppose maybe I'm I'm being a bit romantic because it's setting in the Europe that I always associate with the, the coffee shops of Vienna and, you know, where revolution was started and, you know, th- thinking and, and articulating the ideas that change the world seem to have started in Europe. Am I being hopelessly romantic? Oh no. I I mean if you're hopelessly romantic then so am I. I <laughs> I I think you put it beautifully. There there is something really quite revolutionary about doing this kind of handwork in this day and age and making a staple product that has been so over-industrialized over the last century and kind of fighting the good fight for a quality product that people really respond to, but it's still, it's a hard, hard line of work. And and so I do think it's a, a bit of a revolutionary act. Two of the bakers that you've included are from our own E5 Bakehouse in London. Um, how does London compare with some of the great bakeries and how do Ben McKinnon and Ayal Schwartz compare? Oh, well, I think London is one of the great bakery cities in Europe. Uh, the level of bread making and pastry is incredible. There's so many wonderful bakeries, but for me, E5 is one of the originals and it's still, I would say, one of the best. And it's always my first stop when I'm in London. 
And I, I, I think it's more than just craftsmanship that goes in there. There's a real ethical and holistic view of the food sourcing and very, it's very farm to loaf baking because they do have their own farm where they're growing wheat, they're milling it, the whole thing. Uh, and it's really, really impressive. And it's, it, it's impressive just if you eat a loaf of their bread and you know nothing about their story. Let's, let's go from there to your first food moment. Um, no, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that name. Oh, let me jump in on this one. It's Jagodzianki. If there's any Polish people listening, I, I've probably butchered that myself, but I'm pretty sure it's Jagodzianki. And those are Polish blueberry buns. Tell me why this one? Why this one? Well, it's my favorite recipe in the book. So I had to list it as one of the food moments. Uh, so they are these Polish blueberry buns. And now I've been going to Poland as long as I've lived in Europe, basically. But my first date with my husband was to Poland. He, it, it was, I would say the singularly most romantic thing he's ever done. Got me in the car, drove me across the border from the Czech Republic into Poland, bought me a bucket of pickles because they do the best lacto-fermented sour pickles in Poland. Um, and yet that is not the reason I really fell in love with Polish cuisine and baking because I am absolutely in love with it. Uh, it was the Jagodzianki. And so it's a seasonal pastry uh, that you only find it in the summertime because the forests in Poland, they're just full of wild blueberries. And it, you can drive on all kinds of roads and there'll be people sitting out in little lawn chairs with buckets of blueberries that they've foraged all morning right next to them. And you can say, okay, I want a kilo of them. And and they're very, very cheap. And then you can take them home and you can make these blueberry buns. But also all the bakeries have them. So any bakery you go into in the summer in Poland, you can get one of these you know, these blueberry buns. And when it's done right, the blueberries are not too sweet, but they're just right kind of jammy and they're covered in streusel and maybe like a li little lemon drizzle. And it's Oh, it's the best thing in the world. I don't think I've ever had anything like it. I'm trying to imagine. You say soft milk buns shaped a bit like a torpedo. They're stuffed with a very slightly, lightly sweetened blueberries, then topped with streusel. And, and again, this, as you say, a lemony drizzle. Is there anything that you've ever tasted elsewhere that we could kind of wrap our imaginations around? Um, if you imagine a jelly donut that was baked and not fried and then covered in streusel. That, that could be something closer to it. But, but, but I, I'm willing to say there is no equal. It's just so good <laughs> and, and so much a thing unto itself. Your second food moment takes us to Prague. Again, something that I just don't think I've ever tried anything like this. Tell us about this spiced plum kolaki. So it's called a uh, kolacek, and the plural is kolachki. Um, and it's probably the most common Czech pastry that there is. So again, it's a enriched dough, so sort of a milk bread. And it's a bit of a flattened disc with a bit of a lip to it. And it has a small range of flavors you can get. You can get plum, you can get 
apricot, you can get sweet cheese, you can get poppy seed and any combination of all of those. And again, it's usually covered in streusel, maybe a little glaze. And it's just a really common kind of breakfast pastry. There are special versions for weddings. There's a huge one up uh, near the the northeastern border with Poland called Fergal. That's like a pizza, but really, really typical Czech pastry. This is what you used to buy a bag of as you're wandering through the cobbled streets of Prague on your way back from the smelly bar. And this little match girl is getting fatter and fatter. You said you put on about 10 pounds. I, I certainly did. I certainly did. There was one place where, where you could get these. And I um, that actually wasn't a bakery. There was one bakery I'd stop and I would get bread rolls. Uh, but this one was actually in a 24-hour grocery store. It was. It just has signs. It said Potervini Nonstop, which is basically nonstop grocery store. And it was a tiny little place. And it was right near where I I lived. And so if you went in there at, say, four in the morning, there was always the same guy behind the cash register. You know, he's got a mullet and he had this huge tattoo of the the Ford logo, like Ford cars. And they got a bakery delivery. And I still don't know what what bakery was delivering, but it's so good, all these pastries. So I would stop in and they would be really hot because the bakeries work all night and these were totally fresh. And no, they just melt away in your mouth. They're incredible. Yeah. There's something very romantic as well about going to a bakery at six o'clock in the morning. I'm very jealous. Um, your third food moment is about your friend, actually. This is a lovely moment. It's about your friend, Aisha Bennett, who's um, kind of, you say she's the mayor of your part of Berlin. You, of course, live in the coolest part of Berlin, of course, don't you? I, as one does, as one does. <laughs> well, I, I say that she's the proverbial mayor. You know, everyone knows her. She's been around for ages and... You know, she and I, we started our businesses around the same time, more than a decade ago. And and she was always there. You know, you could always call her up and say, hey, have you been having trouble with this office? How do you do this? How do you get this permit? And she's always been there for me, but she's really known for her cocktail bar. It's called Geist im Glas. And in Neukölln, there used to be some raging parties there. They were incredible. So Aisha is, you know, tough bar girl who's, because you've got to be, right? To, she's kind of a balabusta to run a place like this. Uh, but she's, she's an amazing cook. And I remember when she had me over for her sausage rolls, I thought, oh, now we're really friends. <laughs> and so when I was doing this book, I said, Aisha, you gotta, you gotta let me, let me put this recipe in because Aisha, so she's English Palestinian. And this is to me, this one of those perfect sort of cultural combinations. Uh, it's a lamb sausage roll. There's pistachios in there. It's a little seasoned with cinnamon and yogurt and in a, in a very flaky pastry. Uh, so it's it's sort of like a kafta meets a sausage roll, and it's just the 
best thing on earth. So I'm really grateful to her that she let me put this in. Yeah, really, really. That photograph, is that a Minta photograph? Minta photographed the whole book. Okay, so that is just the most amazing photograph. I went to uh, to Turin recently with Minta and I watched her photographing and she's something else, isn't she? She's Did really quite you? extraordinary. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. I love her. She's great. Your final food moment is Hala Croissants, a complete crossing of cultures. Um, how can a Hala leave home? Like all good thing, good Jewish things, they, there is no home, but home is everywhere as long as you've got the right food, maybe. Yeah, this is, this is definitely a wandering <laughs> croissant, if you will. Um, when I went to culinary school, I did all that and I, I learned how to laminate pastry and I... It's one of my favorite things to do. Every time I make croissants, I make pain au chocolat, I, it's magic. The layers are absolute magic. And I, and I went through a bit of a, can I laminate that phase? And trying to laminate every kind of dough I knew. And because my favorite thing in the world to eat is a fresh loaf of challah, uh, I thought, okay, can I laminate challah? Well, of course I can laminate challah. Uh, but I did sort of think, oh, it's 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 pointless, right? Because challah doesn't have butter in it. It kind of ruins the point of challah. It's always made with oil. And won't the butter just overwhelm the challah flavor? But when I did it, because I had to, I found, no, the challah flavor, that rich egginess, it just stays intact. But then you have all of these buttery layers at the same time. And so it really does taste like what it is. It is a challah croissant. You don't lose the challah flavor to it. It's interesting because, you know, it sums up for me what I think you mean by new European bakery. It's old but it's new as I said before but you say that when you were in the Loire and you were at culinary school there you kind of found a new wave of bakery what is the new wave I think what's new is what's old and so it's what's new is that baking in Europe has been such a an institutionalized thing for so long if you you go to a French baking school you're going to learn to do this that and this, and you're going to do it like this. And if you're in Italy, you're going to do it like this. In Germany, you're going to do it like this. And so now there's much, much more cultural exchange and many more people coming into bakery from different backgrounds, whether it's a change of profession or from a different country. So that's happening in terms of flavor. And at the same time, it's a return to the old in terms of craftsmanship and way of working and a reinvestment into the skills of the craft. Just like those old philosophers in the Parisian cafes and those old gentlemen in the Viennese cafes, <laughs> perhaps. Is there some kind of, I don't know, circular story going on? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's totally a circular story. There's a lot of corrections for for a lot of the um, abominations of industrialization. And at the same time, there is a lot of freedom to experiment. And 
you don't have to necessarily provide the same things for customers as a quote-unquote traditional bakery. People are open to new ideas in bread and pastry. Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at Smith, And you can also find a little surprise each week on Substack as I ask my guests for a little extra something. Just search for Jilly Smith on Substack and give me a follow. And I'll see you next week.